the way that we then got up to 45% is because we talked to people. Conversations were had. It wasn't politicians like Alex Sams and Nicola Sturgeon or Patrick Harvey from the Greens. It was campaigners who were talking to people out on the streets, which is important, but also just talking to people that you know about independence, making it more normalized. So there needs to be that sense that it's not outside of the mainstream debate. This is part of the discussion on the future of what you would say is the California nation. I am really excited to have uh, our guest today. Um, this is Angus Brownlee. He is a Scottish independence activist, a member of SNP, Scottish National Party. And he's former chairperson of the International Solidarity Committee of the Youth Wing of the SNP. And we're going to talk about Scottish independence. Um, the SNP and the recent developments over the past uh, few days and week uh, with uh, Nicola Sturgeon's speech and announcement. So welcome, Angus. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a, I'm a bit of fan of the show and uh, watch everything that's going on in California with, with great interest. So it's, it's great to be here to, to talk a little bit and inform your listeners a little bit about what's happening over here and what's been happening. Yeah, it's I when when I follow what's happening in Scotland, I know notice a lot of parallels um between between the different movements and the the motivations behind them and some of the dynamics involved, so definitely. Could we start off by just very briefly kind of going over just for listeners who may not be uh completely up to date or knowledgeable about this, just a, a brief history of Scotland itself and how it relates to the to the United Kingdom politically and how that came about and what that political structure is and that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So Scotland is one of what we call the four constituent nations of the United Kingdom. So it's not a federalized system like you're used to in the United States. It's more of a country made up of countries. Um, so Scotland is the northernmost nation on the island of Britain, which is the largest uh, the largest of the British Isles. England is to the south of us. You've got Wales or Cymru and Welsh, uh, which is a large peninsula to the southwest. And then across the Irish Sea, you have the partitioned island of Ireland. Um, the northern part is in the United Kingdom. And then the south of that is an independent republic. So you've got four parts, Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, Um and in terms of its relationship, uh, Scotland's relationship rather with uh, the United Kingdom, um, it's a 300-year-old sort of union uh, of the two countries that actually originally came about in the 1600s. So you had uh, King James of Scotland 
inherited the throne from his relative Elizabeth I of England, and he became James I of England and the sixth of Scotland. Um, uh, he grew up a Protestant instead of a Catholic, which is what people like his mother in Scotland grew up as. He was very disconnected from Scottish politics and from Scottish identity. And when he ascended to the throne, he was very much in favour of greater integration between England and Scotland. Um, and then if you skip forward another 100 years to the 1700s, you have Queen Anne, who was a great proponent of deeper political integration. So not just the two crowns joining, but also the uh, the political and the economics joining together. Um, and she basically encouraged parliamentary ministers in both the Scottish and the English parliaments because they were both separate still at this point. And in 1705, they both negotiated what was called the Treaty of Union. And then at that point, that then led to a vote in the Scottish Parliament on the 16th of January. 110 members to 69 members voted to ratify this Act of Union. And at that point, the Scottish and the English parliaments both were dissolved. Uh, they were amalgamated into the Parliament of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, that being England and Scotland, uh, which is the, the UK Parliament today that's located in Westminster Abbey in London. And as I understand, um, there is no written constitution. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. So we have what's known as an uncodified constitution. So rather than being a single document, and there are documents that exist. We have in Scotland, we have Scots Law, um, which actually was written into the Treaty of Union that Scotland would retain its its judicial system separate from the UK judicial system, um, even though we're still under the UK judicial system. There's, it's, it's very complex. There's a lot of, you know, 300-year-old union. There's a lot there that's complex. But um, there's also um, that the it's based off of precedent. So it's based off of acts of parliament that have been signed over years and years and years. You can have acts of parliament that are 400 years old that are still relevant today. Wow, 400 years old. That's That goes back, uh, th that's much longer than the uh, United States has been around. And you have these two parliaments, um, and just really briefly here, uh, you have Westminster, which is the, the general UK parliament, and then Holyrood, which is the Scottish parliament. Um, so can you talk just a, very briefly about the similarities and differences between those two? Um, so I should probably explain, first of all, what devolution is. Um, devolution is what came out of the Scottish Constitutional Convention in the 1990s. So you had politicians from a wide range of different political parties in Scotland who wanted to see greater autonomy for Scotland. Um, and this eventually led to the Labour Party, led by Tony Blair at the time in 97, uh, putting in the party's uh, platform for election to hold a referendum on establishing what was at the time called the Scottish Assembly, but has since become the Scottish Parliament. Um, all the major parties, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish National Party, and the Green Party all campaigned in favour of it. The Conservative Party was the only party that decided to campaign against the introduction of the Assembly. Um, and uh, the ballots came in and the result was resoundingly, yes, people do want a Scottish Parliament and they want the Scottish Parliament to have certain 
powers. So uh, that was then passed at a UK level because uh, obviously there wasn't a Scottish Parliament at the time. The Scottish, as I said, the Scottish Parliament became the UK Parliament. So they had to create a new law, the Scotland Act 1998, to create a Scottish Parliament. And one thing I should probably point out at this time is the power to withdraw that act still lies with the UK Parliament. The Scotland Act is not a bilateral agreement. It is a unilateral law at UK level. The UK Parliament can choose not to have that law in effect any longer. They can revoke that law or override it with another law. Um, so 1999, the new Parliament comes in, the elections are held, and the Scottish Labour First Minister, Donald Dewar at the time, sadly passed away many years ago, um, proclaimed there shall be a Scottish Parliament. Now remember, it was called the Scottish Assembly at the time, so the fact that people were already calling it a Parliament probably says a little bit about how even people who you'd think are pro-union uh, in the United Kingdom feel about Scotland. Um, and the Scottish Parliament had a, a range of powers they've been added to over the years. New Acts of Parliament have been added in to give new powers. So we have what are devolved powers and reserved. So devolved are powers that the Scottish Parliament holds, and that includes agriculture, that is some aspects of the social security system, uh, education and training, elections to the Scottish Parliament and local government are set in the Parliament. You have environment, some areas of equality legislation, fire services, health and social services. So um, we run our own uh, national health service, the universal healthcare system we have in the UK. There's NHS England and there's NHS Scotland, which the Scottish Parliament runs. There's housing, justice and policing. As I said, Scots law was part of the Scotland Act, uh, the original Treaty of Union, local government, some areas of taxation, tourism, some areas of transport. What's reserved still to the UK Parliament, and this is something that a lot of people who support Scottish independence will point out when people say that, you know, oh, the Scottish Parliament's quite powerful, or why can we not introduce this bill? Why can we not do this? The reason for that is because the powers that are still reserved include broadcasting. The Constitution, as I said, the Scotland Act was signed by the UK Parliament, not the Scottish Parliament. We can't legislate on that to change anything. Currency, consumer protection and workers' rights, defence and national security, elections to the UK Parliament. So there are slight differences to how the uh, elections to the Scottish Parliament work compared to the UK Parliament, and I can get into those in a minute if you want me to. Um, industrial relations is a big one at the moment. The Scottish Parliament can't legislate on trade unions, and there's a huge swath of... Um, union unrest at the moment for good reason during a cost of living crisis you expect workers to want to be paired to be paid above inflation um, we're hearing that the uk government is probably going to be further stripping the rights to unionize we can't do anything about that in scotland um, immigration asylum visas citizenship most of taxation and most crucially at the moment trade and industry because, of course, right now we're, we have a UK government that is looking to break international law by reneging on a deal it made with the European Union when we left against, of course, against Scotland's democratic will. Scotland, people in Scotland voted to remain in the European Union while parts of the rest of the UK voted to leave. Um, and because of that, we now have 
uh, a deal that wasn't quite ready, but was touted as being oven ready. It was a fantastic deal. A year later, we've discovered it's actually not a great deal. It's causing a lot of issues, particularly in Northern Ireland, which for, for anyone who knows anything about the troubles that happened in the 1970s, you know that that's a, a huge issue that cannot be played with. But at the moment, we're looking at basically a trade war with the EU because we're looking to renege on that international deal. So that's some of some of the big issues that underpin why the Scottish Parliament needs these powers. But of course, these are the powers that the UK Parliament reserves. Yeah, those are some pretty big issues. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that they don't get much bigger than that. It sounds very similar to kind of what we have here in California, um, this kind of tension that we have between Washington, um, D.C., and uh, Sacramento, in that uh, we do have control over many different things here, but some of the biggest things, and they're a lot of the same things that you were mentioning uh, there, immigration policy, defense, currency, um, trade, those kinds of, trade is a big one over here. Um, those are those are all uh, largely dictated at the federal level. So uh, yeah, I see that same dynamic of that, that tension that, yeah, you, you, you're in control of a lot of things, but um, that there's just some other bigger things that uh, you're at the whim of what uh, this other government's going to do. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about the, so we're talking about devolution. You little, talk a little bit about SNP and um, the history of SNP and uh, where, where it is right now. And, uh, and leading into a little bit of history, maybe up to like the first referendum in 2014. Yeah, absolutely. So the Scottish National Party was founded way back in 1934. Um, it was actually a merger of two different parties. So the National Party of Scotland and the Scottish Party both came together because uh, the leader of the, the NF NPS at the time, John McCormack, thought that we needed a unified nationalist movement in Scotland, which didn't really exist at that time. You know, Scottish independence was far from everybody's mind at this point. Um, although, interestingly enough, the party initially didn't support independence. It was actually in favour of the devolved Scottish Assembly that we now have as the Scottish Parliament. Um, but, of course, as we know, that didn't really last for too long, and eventually the position of the party did become pro-independence. Um, and in terms of the party's electoral successes and how big the party was, there wasn't really too much media chatter or interest in the SNP until you get to 1967. That's a really important day in Scottish politics. That was the, the day of the Hamilton constituency by-election uh, here in Scotland. And that was the election of Winifred Winnie Ewing, who is uh, an absolute celebrity in the SNP. Um, to the to the UK Parliament, and on the night of her uh, the by-election victory, she uttered what is now a famous nationalist phrase: "Stop the world! Scotland wants to get on." Um, and I, I think you agree that's a fantastic line, um, and it really it, it shows what the, the Scottish movement is about. It's not about insular. It's not about retreating from the world. It's about 
what can Scotland bring to the world as an independent nation? What can we what can we contribute to the global community? Um, and as you'd expect, that that caught a lot of people's attention. You know, you saw um, an increase in the SNP membership, and things kept getting better and better as we hit into the the nineteen seventies with the discovery of the the North Sea oil reserves off the coast of Aberdeen. Um, which was touted by the SNP as it's Scotland's oil. They ran a big campaign over it. They fought the 1974 uh, general elections over it, uh, pointing out that the revenue that would be created from it would not benefit Scotland to any significant degree as long as they were part of the United Kingdom. And this is true. You know, we have squandered North Sea oil reserves over the years. You know, if you look at Norway, they have a sovereign oil fund that they use to fund. Uh, government programs. That's how Norway is one of the happiest and most successful, in my opinion, nations in the world is because they invest in people and they've used this oil fund to invest in people. That could have been Scotland, but it wasn't because we weren't independent. Um, and actually, probably one of the most critical things that happened was what happened in 1979, and that is the, the first referendum on devolution. So I mentioned that in 1997, the Labour Party under Tony Blair held a referendum on a Scottish Assembly, but that wasn't the first referendum. There was actually one already in 1997. Uh, the Labour Party had a minority in the UK Parliament, and the SNP had just enough seats to be able to prop them up in exchange for a referendum on a devolved Scottish Assembly with limited legislative powers like we have now. But what happened was there was a Labour MP called George Cunningham. Uh, he inserted an amendment into it that, into the bill that would bring the referendum, that the proposal had to be approved by 40% of all the registered voters in Scotland. So on the day of the referendum, the results come in, 51% of people voted in favour of an assembly on a turnout of 63%. But by those metrics, technically only 33% of the uh, eligible electorate had voted in favour, which means it didn't meet that 40% threshold that was then amended in the bill. So the referendum was lost. And because of that, the SNP withdrew its support for the Labour government and we voted against them in, no com in a vote of no confidence. There was another election held and that didn't bring around, but it contributed to the rise of Margaret Thatcher and 30 years of conservative rule. Yeah. So the, uh, the SNP became gradually more and more popular over the past 20, 25 years. Um, and there was this uh, first referendum in uh, 2014. So can you say a little bit about that, um, how that came about and... Um, Obviously, it, it didn't pass, but um, what the result of that was and the, the ramifications. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the referendum came about because uh, in this new Scottish Parliament, um, well, actually, before I get into that, it's probably one thing I should mention about the Scottish Parliament. It, it works on a form of proportional representation. So in the Scottish Parliament, there's not supposed to be what you'd call majority government, so one party having an overall amount of seats. Um, so for the first few years, we had the 
Labour Party and the Liberal Democrat Party, a, a left wing and a centrist party in coalition with each other for the first two terms. Then in 2007, the SNP won a minority government under Alex Salmond. And then in 2011, by um, what is a fluke, um, the SNP managed to win a parliamentary majority. I think we had a parliamentary majority of two seats, one seat. Um, this sent shockwaves through Scottish politics. And of course, in our party platform, one of the uh, agreements that we had was that if we were elected and we could form a government, we would then push for an independence referendum. So at that point, the SNP leader at the time and the first minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond, um, spoke to the then prime minister, David Cameron, who was from the Conservative Party, and the deputy prime minister, Nick Clegg, from the Liberal Democrat Party, to work on holding a referendum. Now, to be able to do that, in theory, and we'll get into this a little bit later, Scotland, the Scottish Parliament needs to be given what is called a Section 30 order. So very briefly, what that is, it's the technical name that refers to a section of the Scotland Act 1998 that created the Scottish Parliament that allows the Scottish Parliament, Holyrood, to legislate in an area that is usually reserved to Westminster. So things like trade, things like uh, larger parts of the equality law or uh, electoral franchising. Um, and these are powers that have been used uh, 16 times since the Scottish Parliament was created in 1999. Um, the agreement was then passed that the Section 30 order would be given and David Cameron and Alex Salmond signed what was dubbed the Edinburgh Agreement that would legislate for the referendum. Um, in that, the Scottish Parliament was given the power to set the question of the referendum do you want Scotland to become an independent question, an independent Scotland? Yes or no. The eligibility and the franchise of it. So obviously people who live in Scotland and have British citizenship could vote. European Union citizens who lived in Scotland but were not native to Scotland, as it were, were allowed to vote. Um, and crucially, 16 and 17 year olds were allowed to vote in the referendum. Um, this was the first time in UK politics that 16 and 17 year olds could vote. Uh, that is now the standard in Scotland, as is European Union citizens being allowed to vote. Um, and finally, which body would be able to organise the, the referendum vote? So that was the Scottish Parliament working with the UK Electoral Commission, which is the independent body that oversees all the elections across the UK. So uh, this was agreed by David Cameron. They had the, the referendum and um, I believe it failed about 55 to 45. Correct. It did, yeah. So, 19th of, so the 18th of September, the vote was held. 19th of September, the results come in. It is 55% against independence on a turnout of 85%, uh, which is about 4.3 million people. Population of Scotland is 5.5 million. So you're talking a pretty large swath of the population voting in this referendum. Um, my home county actually voted no to independence. Um, interestingly, as did the, our capital city, Edinburgh. Um, but interestingly enough, the city of Glasgow did not. Um, Glasgow is uh, our largest city. It's to the west coast. It is a, it's one of these towns that was, it's one of these cities rather that was actually very, very poorly managed during the minor strikes, during Thatcher's privatization and shutting down the coal mines. It's a very working class area. 
it's a, it was until recent history a Labour stronghold. You know, the Labour Party dominated there. It was their grip on Scotland, and they they were the largest area to vote yes. I do want to get into this um, announcement about the uh, proposed second referendum, but uh, before we do that, maybe just go over kind of just the state of the SNP at the moment, like membership, um, the different groups that are uh, involved with it. I know you were a former uh, chairperson of the part of the youth wing that's international solidarity. Um, so maybe just a little bit about just where the SNP is now and uh, some some things about it. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I should uh, give you a little outline of what exactly is the SNP. So we're obviously, we're Scottish nationalists, we're pro-independence. Um, we're described as being social democratic, which for your listeners um, in an American context, you're probably looking at um, people like Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, um, people like that. Um, we're big tent, so we're not just left-leaning people. We have conservatives, we have liberals, we have people further left um, on the political spectrum. And the main reason for the SNP is, of course, Scottish independence and membership of the European Union, all based on a platform of civic nationalism. You know, we're not ethnic nationalists. We don't think that Scotland is just for people born in Scotland. We're very welcoming of new Scots. We have a lot of new Scots in big parts of our party. We have people from Ireland, we have people from the rest of Europe, we have Americans, we have Canadians, we have Australians, we have people from South Africa, all different parts of the world involved in the SNP. Um, we're the largest political party in Scotland, so we have 119,000 members. Um, we have um, and actually, in terms of membership, we're the third largest political party in the whole of the United Kingdom, uh, just behind the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. Um, in terms of uh, where we are with parliamentary seats, we have 64 out of 129 seats in the Scottish Parliament. So that's one short of a majority. And we hold 45 of the 59 seats in the House of Commons allocated to Scotland. So we have the majority of seats in the House of Commons as well. Um, the leader of the SNP is a woman called Nicola Sturgeon. She has been, she's served as first minister since, uh, November of 2014. She's served three consecutive terms. And before that, she was actually the deputy leader of the SNP and the deputy first minister underneath Alex Salmond, um, and reelected again in the, uh, the recent Scottish parliament election, which was the 18th of May in 2021. And currently, the SNP is in coalition with the Scottish Greens for the, for, for the Holyrood. Yeah. yeah, so in the Scottish Parliament, um, as I said, we were one short of the majority. That's fine. That's how the Scottish Parliament is supposed to work. 2011 was, as I said, it was a wild card. No one could have predicted it was going to happen. Nobody predicted it was going to happen. It was a shock to the system. So in 2016 election, we ruled as a minority government relying on votes from different parties like the, the Greens, the Labour Party, the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats. In, in 2021, when we won the election, Nicola Sturgeon approached the co-leaders of the Green Party, so that's Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, 
um, who were both elected along with some of their cohorts in the Greens to the Scottish Parliament and said to them, would you like to work with us in building some form of majority government? Because of course we were dealing with COVID still at the time and we still are. Um, thankfully that seems to have died down, touch wood. Um, we have the independence referendum coming up. We both parties committed in their uh, party platform that if a majority of pro-independence parliamentarians were elected, that would be a mandate for a second referendum. That did happen. The Greens and the SNP make a parliamentary majority. This was simply about cementing that in government. Um, and in return for that, the Greens would take on two ministerial positions. That was Lorna and Patrick that took those on. And in fact, they became, they've become the first ever Green Party politicians in the United Kingdom to become ministers in government. Um, it's not a coalition in the truest sense. It's a cooperation agreement. So we've agreed points that we can agree on and points that we can agree on. So we agree on independence. We agree on the green agenda. We agree on... Um, a whole range of issues, but there are issues that we don't agree on, like what sort of economy do we want going forward? Um, how do we want to measure said economy? What kind of international relations do we want? The Greens are anti-NATO, the SNP is pro-NATO. So we've, we've come together and said, you know, we're grown-ups, this is politics, we're going to agree on some things, we're going to disagree on some things, let's just agree on what we can agree on and outwith of that scope, we can vote against each other as much as we like. So that's where we are now in terms of a Scottish government. And both parties were asked whether they approve of that. The membership of both overwhelmingly voted in favour of that deal. And since then, the Greens have now been in government with the SNP. Well, compared to where American politics is now, that seems... Uh... <laughs> it's like in another world. <laughs> You're talking about like people from different parties. We're going to... We agree on this and we disagree on that and we're going to uh, work together and um, it sounds a lot more functional than what we have at the moment here. We'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, what motivates a lot of uh, Scots for independence and uh, I wanted to ask just you individually, and you know, you don't have to say anything that's uh, you know too personal or anything. But how you became involved, or what motivated you um, to join the SNP and become involved in it as an activist, and then largely, what you think are the major issues that um, that motivates all the different people who support this, as far as is it policy, culture, you know, a, a, a whole range of different things. So. Uh, what's going on uh, with this? Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with myself rather selfishly. Um, in terms of why I got involved, um, uh, I wasn't active during the 2014 referendum. I was I was uh, I was in school at the time, so I was uh, I voted. Obviously, I, I voted yes. Um, and after the referendum, uh, seeing the groundswell and support from the SNP, you know, the SNP was on something like 25,000 members on the day of the referendum. And then by the end of the next year, uh, by, by May of 2015, you're talking 100,000 members. You know, it was a massive, massive inswell of members. 
um, mostly from the Labour Party and Labour communities that felt betrayed by the Labour Party for campaigning against independence. Um, and I got involved in 2015. Uh, I took a few months to, to really think about it. I was tossing up between whether I wanted to join the Greens or the SNP. At the time, I felt that the SNP was more aligned with my politics. It was a bit more centre-left than it was left-wing. Um, and I, I sort of threw myself into the deep end. I, um, I think the, the first time I went campaigning was to go canvassing. Um, so going to people's doorsteps and, you know, asking them uh, how you're feeling about the election, how you're feeling about independence, um, sort of stuff like that, um, which for somebody who's um, not not quite as outgoing and sociable as I am, that was, uh, that was uh, definitely threw myself into the deep end there, as I said. Um, and since then, you know, as you said, I've been involved in in the party quite a bit. I'm very active in my, in my local area. I hold a different positions at a local level um within the uh the local chapters as they are in the in the party um in 2018 i believe it was i was uh i was asked to take over as chairperson for the international solidarity committee as you put it for the the young scots for independence which is the youth wing of the party i, I took that role on for a number of years uh one of the things I did in that time was actually talk to people from the, the California independence movement and the, the California national party of which I've uh, got some good friends in there. Um, and for me, at least why I got involved and why I care about Scottish independence, it comes down to something that I think a lot of people that support independence. And I know this from talking to people who were involved in 2014 and people who've recently joined the party. It's, one of the main things is about democracy. It's about getting the governments we vote for. You know, right now we have a conservative majority government at a UK level that we have not voted for. You know, Scotland has not voted uh, for majority conservative governments since the 1950s. You know, we're talking over 70 years of Labour Party or SNP voting and the same in the Scottish Parliament. We vote for the SNP, we vote for the Labour Party, we don't vote for conservative governments. We're not a very conservative country. There's conservative elements. And you know, I'm not going to deny that there's conservatism in Scotland. But we're more of a centre-left to left-leaning country. And I think a lot of people feel that we're very disconnected from the Westminster system. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I know that this is um, true for many people that live in places like the north of England, people who live in Wales as well. You know, there's this disconnect from the centralized government who do control all these powers. And again, I've, I've, I've mentioned this quite a few times, and I'm going to keep repeating it. The UK Parliament still holds the power to reverse the Scotland Act 1996. They can get rid of the Scottish Parliament if they want to. If they want to, they can just decide to vote for it. And the Conservatives do have a majority at Westminster now. If they wanted to do it, they could do it. Remember, they didn't want a Scottish Parliament in the first place. They campaigned against it. So it's this um, this desire for building real democracy. And that's not just to give the Scottish Parliament all the powers it needs to be able to, to make life better for people here in Scotland, to legislate on things like social justice, like on a transport revolution, on the green agenda, on rejoining the European Union, on 
uh, playing our role on the global stage on becoming a welcoming place for refugees and asylum seekers rather than trying to ship them off to Rwanda like the UK government is currently doing. You know, it's these issues that are important to people in Scotland, but we can't legislate on them. And the government that can legislate on them, we haven't voted for and we probably won't be voting for anytime soon. So I think for a lot of people, including myself, it's about democracy and it's about wanting to build a better country and needing the powers to do that. And of course, there's other elements, you know, for me personally, joining the rejoining the European Union as an independent member, that's very important to me. Um, you probably see on my stand up there behind me, I've got the EU and the Scottish flags together. I'm a big proponent of the EU. I, you know, I'm not quiet about that, despite all of its flaws. But again, we were taken out of the European Union against our will, despite voting 63% in favour of staying in the EU. You know, these are all issues that have been taken by other people that should have been decisions made by Scotland. So I think, if, if, again, if you ask the majority of people, it would be democracy, it would be building a better country, it's just wanting the ability to go in a different direction than we're being dragged in, as Nicola Sturgeon puts it, by the UK government. Absolutely. That, boy, that that really um, strikes a chord with, with me when I think about uh, California and and what's going on over here. I know a lot of uh, Californians feel very similar to Washington as what you're describing towards Westminster, that it's uh, it's just this kind of distant, um, non-representative uh, government that we don't have much control over, that we can't really make decisions for ourselves. There's a, there's a democratic deficit. Um, we're definitely more on the left of the political spectrum in California than the rest of the country. Um, and yeah, we went to one of the things that you mentioned that really um, uh, struck me was, you know, you said we're, we're not isolationist, like the, uh, the, the desire to uh, be independent from the UK is not you know, out of a desire to you know, isolate and retreat from the world. It's about being more internationalist and uh, making more connections. And it's the same thing here. And I think this is something that, you know, we have uh, kind of an issue that we need to deal with in California is there's a lot of secession movements in the United States thinking, well, you know, places like Texas and New Hampshire and the South where, um, you know, I support the right to self-determination, but, you know, their reasons, their reasons for wanting to, to secede or to, to become independent are very different from us. They're different to ours. Yeah. They're very different. Um, and, and it would be hypocritical to say that, you know, I would deny them that, but at the same time, we need to be clear that it is, you know, that with that, that we're not. We need to delineate um, th those differences that that we're not retreating to to, to isolate ourselves from the world. That we want to—it's it, kind of a paradox in that you kind of have to. We feel that we need to separate to more engage with the world that that the United States is holding us back from engaging and having connections with the rest of the world. So that that really uh, struck me as well. Um, 
Yeah, and just just one thing I want to add in there as well. When we talk about playing a bigger role in the world and not being isolationist, that includes our partners in the rest of the United Kingdom. You know, when we become independent, we're not suddenly going to float off um, into the North Sea. We're still going to be part of the British Isles. We're still going to be Britons in the sense of people who live on the island, on the geographical location of Britain. This is not about being anti-English. This is not about hating English people. This is not about hating English democracy. This will be just as good for English democracy as it will be for Scottish democracy. You know, seeing what Scotland is doing, I hope, will help push um, certainly the left in the UK, but also the centre ground and the centre right as well at this point. You know, we're seeing a very big lurch to the struggle to stay far right, but certainly towards a slightly more authoritarian style of government, perhaps not full authoritarianism, but a, a, a quasi-authoritarianism in the UK. You know, something needs to shift in UK politics, and it's not going to happen in Parliament. So something outside of Parliament needs to happen. And I think something like Scotland becoming independent and showing people in England, whether it's on the left, the centre-right, the centre-ground, what have you, showing them that there is something better that they can be doing, that can only be good for all of us. You know, this this will benefit English democracy in the same way as it will benefit Scottish democracy, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, we, we think the same thing uh, over here. One of the things with American politics is that since there's this constant, you know, fighting between uh, Democrats, Republicans, uh, liberals, conservatives, or progressives and conservatives, that they're always able to blame the problems of America on the other side. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, the conservatives are just always able to say, well, if it just wasn't for those dang Democrats and their, you know, their, their liberal progressive policies, America would be just like this wonderful, great place. And, uh, you know, and the left does the same thing as well. You know, they say, you know, if we didn't have to deal with the Republicans, we didn't, we didn't have to deal with conservative policies, we'd be in a much better place. So, um, yeah, I think that when you're able to, uh, whether it's Scotland or California or, or wherever it would be, if you're able to um, become independent, you 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 kind of have to sink or swim on your own and you, you don't, you can't, uh, you can't say, well, my problems are due to something else. You have to own up to how things happen. And that is true, whether you do well and succeed or whether things don't go well, uh, but at least it's being done democratically and, um, and yeah. And in a way that is aligned with the direction that people want to go in their own communities and their, their own region. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so I watched Nicholas Sturgeon's uh, speech. I don't know if it was yesterday or it was within the, the past couple of days. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of what her proposals are and some of the specifics about that. I did notice at the beginning she, she uh, listed off a number of things that uh, – are issues for Scotland that she feels like Westminster and uh, the UK is 
really in conflict with and is not allowing Scotland to do what they want to do and is hurting, hurting and harming Scotland. So a big ones that I picked up on were the economy, cost of living, poverty, um, which is something that is, uh, that's important to me since, uh, I think about economics a lot and I have you know, some ideas about that. And my own personal opinion is that if, if you're not independent and you don't have your own currency, you really, you, you don't really have the full power of, um, being able to harness your, your resources and your, your population and your, your economic power. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that's a big thing that resonated with me, but she also mentioned things like trade, uh, which is also something that's, um, a big deal here in California, how we, we're, we have to go through all these federal red, red tape before we're able to, uh, you know, trade a certain good, say, you know, the, and then there's of course, Brexit and EU, which, uh, we've talked about, but she also talked about human rights, uh, you know, unionization, um, climate change, how, uh, you not able to, uh, to address that as well. Westminster governments, we don't vote for imposing policies. We don't support too often holding us back from fulfilling our potential. That reality has really been starker than it is now. The Conservatives have just six MPs in Scotland, barely 10% of Scottish representation, and yet they have ripped us out of the EU against our will. They have created the worst cost of living crisis in the G7 and saddled us with the second lowest growth in the G20. They are intent on stoking industrial strife demonising workers and provoking a trade war. Businesses and public services are struggling for staff because freedom of movement has been ended. Our young people have been robbed of opportunity. Presiding officer, the Scottish Government will do everything in our power to mitigate the damage. But that is not enough. Our country deserves better. And yet this Parliament looked to for leadership by so many across Scotland does not have the power to tackle the root causes of the financial misery being inflicted on millions. We lack the full range of levers to shape our economy and grow our country's wealth. We are powerless to stop our budget being cut. We can't block the Tories' new anti-trade union laws or stop them tearing up human rights protections. We're not able to restore freedom of movement. And while we invest billions, billions in measures to help with the cost of living, tens of thousands of children can be pushed deeper into poverty at the merest stroke of the Chancellor's pen. Um, and she mentioned a few times freedom of movement. Um, can you say a little bit about, she mentioned that two or three times. Uh, what, what is she talking about specifically with that? Yeah, so freedom of movement for your listeners who may not know is one of the it's one of the key tenets of European Union membership, not exclusively European Union membership, but mostly European Union membership. It's the agreement between countries in the EU that they can that EU citizens can live and work and trade without uh, heavy restriction. So you don't need so. Um, all you need is a passport and you'd be able to travel 
from one end of the European continent to the other if they're members of the European Union. When we left the European Union, one of the things that the, the Scottish government in particular was very keen to emphasize was that we need freedom movement in Scotland. We have a declining population. I think the, the, the global population is declining uh, regardless of what's happening in Scotland. But for Scotland in particular, we have a declining population. We need seasonal workers, and the rest of the UK does as well. But in Scotland in particular, we need seasonal workers to help bolster our working age population. We can't do that if people are having to go through hefty visa processes, which the UK government are doing deliberately because the Conservative Party is hostile to immigration. You know, I'm not I'm not going to shy away from saying that they are hostile to, to immigration. Um, and the issues surrounding free movement are being felt across Scotland. We're having issues with being able, especially now with what's happening with the invasion of Ukraine and uh, wheat exports are being uh, blocked uh, at ports by Russian tankers. It's becoming difficult to get food on the shelves. And this was happening before the invasion. This was happening because of Brexit. During the pandemic, we were the first country to suffer from food not being stocked in uh, supermarket shelves properly. Um, and even when it started happening in Europe, it was never to the severe degree that it was happening in the UK. We're talking waves of um, aisles that just did not have food or drink on them. It was getting that bad. And part of the reason was because of freedom of movement. We didn't have access to the drivers we needed for heavy goods vehicles. We didn't have access to the seasonal food pickers. We didn't have access to the people that we usually have for our services economy. We need freedom of movement in Scotland. The UK needs freedom of movement, but the Conservative Party continues to block it. So that's what Nicola Sturgeon was getting at. It's 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 having a real economic, but also a social uh, impact on the country. Could you talk um, a little bit about the specific proposals that she made so there's a there's actually a bill that was introduced um and so maybe could you go over just what are the particulars of what she's proposing and um kind of the different ways that that could play out uh over the next few months or year or two yeah so um this this was tuesday the 28th of june um, Nicola Sturgeon had announced days previously that she was going to give what was called a, a ministerial statement to the Scottish Parliament uh, outlining the roadmap for a referendum. And I don't think any of us who don't sit around that cabinet table, uh, Scottish Government headquarters at St. Andrew's House, could have guessed what was going to be in that, honestly. Um, it was it was a lot more than we were expecting was going to come out of that. Um, so it was it was quite exciting to watch, actually, I'm not going to lie. Um, so yeah, as you say, the, the Scottish Independence Referendum Bill has been published. Um, first reading of it will happen, no doubt, in coming weeks and months. Um, there are three key provisions for the bill. So the first one is to ascertain the views of the people of Scotland on whether Scotland should be an independent country. And the way we're going to do this is, as the same with the 2014 Independence Referendum, the 2016 EU Referendum, and the 1997 referendum on devolution, there will be a uh, there will be a referendum on the 19th of October in 2023 next year that will be consultative, not self-executing. So what that means in practice is that 
this bill will not, this referendum result will not somehow automatically make Scotland independent. Um, that can't happen. That's not how referendums work in the United Kingdom. What will happen is people will vote on it. Um, the second point of the bill was to say that the question should be the same as it is in 2014. So should Scotland be an independent country? Yes or no? Um, and if people vote yes, then there will then begin a process of negotiations between the UK and the Scottish Parliaments to reverse the Acts of Union from 1707. Um, and the next part of the speech was probably the one that we were we were all hoping would show up. We didn't know if it would, but we were expecting something. Legislative competency. So as I said, there are devolved and reserved matters to the Scottish Parliament. Right now, there is no legal basis to say whether or not the Scottish Parliament has the legislative competency to hold a referendum to ask the Scottish people whether they want to be independent or not. That is um, whether or not we would need what is called a Section 30 order, which I explained earlier, to give the power to the Scottish Parliament to hold that vote. Um, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of, frankly, rubbish coming from particularly Douglas Ross, who's the leader of the, the Scottish Conservative Party. Uh, he keeps bringing up this idea that it's going to be a wildcat referendum. It's an illegal referendum. It's, it's not going to be legal. The Scottish government are trying to break the law. A potentially illegal referendum next year is the wrong priority for Scotland. Members, we will hear Mr Ross. Thank you. Well, SNP members uh, are unhappy about that. It is being referred to the court because the legality of it is not known. Therefore, it is a potentially illegal referendum. That's rubbish. We know it's rubbish. And Nicola Sturgeon has now pushed that issue to the side. That issue is now done with because she has instructed the Lord Advocate for Scotland to refer the matter to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom to see whether or not the provisions of the referendum bill are deserved, are deserved, devolved or reserved. Uh, I know that the legality uh, of a referendum passed by this parliament without a section 30 order is contested. That is why I have asked the Lord Advocate to refer the matter to the Supreme Court so that that can be put beyond any doubt. A referendum that goes ahead will be indisputably legal because the Supreme Court will have deemed it so. Um, and at that stage, any claims about boycotts will sound even sillier uh, than they do now and demonstrate one thing and one thing only. Uh, the Conservatives have no confidence in the arguments for the continuation of the Union. The Lord Advocate has agreed to refer the provision. Um, the paperwork has gone in. And we are now waiting for the UK government lawyers, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to get back to the Scottish government to say whether or not they will take on this bill. They probably are going to take it on because it is literally a matter of the uncodified constitution of the United Kingdom. There's no way that they cannot do that. So for now, we're sort of in a legislative limbo state. We, we can't progress with the referendum bill because we don't know if it's legal. So it's staying where it is for now. We're going to see what the outcome of the, the Supreme Court is. That will take a couple of months. Um, we're hoping that the judgment will be in before the 19th of October 2023. That is the date that has been outlined for the referendum. And um, 
so if I understand what she was saying correctly, I mean, obviously you would hope, I mean, you, you're hoping that they would rule in your favor that, yes, you can have the referendum. Um, but then I think what she was saying was that if the court says, no, you're not allowed to have this, I think the words that she used, she said it would be uh, it would be the result of the legislature. It wouldn't be like that she wouldn't be blaming the court. She was saying that this is a this is now a fault of the legislature. And I think kind of making the point that this is now highlighting how anti-democratic this uh, process, how, how anti-democratic um, the Westminster is, that that they wouldn't be uh, allowing it. Can did you hear that part, that part of her speech? Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 got the I've Yeah, I've got the quote right in front of me. I can read it out for you. So, um as you say, she was very quick to point out that, you know, this will not be the fault of the Supreme Court. And I think maybe I have to to, to highlight that our, the way that the Supreme Court judges are appointed here in the UK is slightly different to how it's done in the US. It is done by the Prime Minister. He does um, recommend people to the Queen because, of course, the Queen is the head of state. She is the, the president, except she's a president for life, uh, a bit like Alexander Hamilton wanted. <laughs> um, and she has to refer it. You know, she's the she's the, the head honcho. She has to do all this. But there there's slightly more consideration from the legal um, profession across the United Kingdom. And that includes in Scotland, because as I said, we have a slightly different legal system that goes back that predates the United Kingdom. So Supreme Court judges are not as political as they seem to be in the, in the United States. So, and I think she was very aware of that fact when she made that statement that do not blame the courts, do not say that the courts are somehow puppets of of British nationalism, you know, they are doing their job. And the Supreme Court has ruled against the United Kingdom government in recent years, especially on on um, illegal acts that have been carried out by the UK government in terms of what it's done with uh, parliamentary procedure or international agreements. You know, the Supreme Court is not in the pocket of the UK government. It is, as far as I can tell, it is a fair court to all. Um, but yeah, um, just quoting from Nicholas Sturgeon here, we will be confronted with the reality that no matter how Scotland votes, regardless of what we desire for our country, Westminster can block and overrule. Westminster will always have the final say. There would be few stronger or more powerful arguments for independence than that, and it would not be the end of the matter far from it. So and I understand also that she said that um if that is the case, there would be a de facto uh, referendum in the UK general election. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the, the the point that Nicola then went on to make was that you know if the Scottish Parliament can't unilaterally legislate for this consultative referendum, and the UK government is still refusing to grant that Section Forty order that the Supreme Court would rule is required, in that situation the Scottish National Party will fight the next UK general election, which is scheduled for uh, 2024, I believe it is, the end of 2024 or the beginning of 2025, one of those two. It might be happening sooner. Politics in the UK, especially with the Conservative Party, is very much in flux. Um, but regardless of when it happens, we will fight the next general election on 
Uh, and my interpretation is it's a single question, but there was no real definitive on that. So it might not be a single issue platform that we put forward, but we will be asking the Scottish people to vote for the SNP to vote for an independent Scotland. That will be what we put forward, and that will be a de facto referendum. Um, this was actually SNP party policy um, years and years and years ago, You know, back before there was a Scottish parliament and there was no other way to express that desire for independence. So we're kind of going back to, um, if I'm understanding it right, we're going back to old SNP policy. I wanted to close with um, kind of what might seem like a strange question, um, and I hope it comes across uh, in a way that makes sense. But um, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's different levels of feeling that you can have about independence as far as, well, I'll just give my own personal kind of feeling. So when I first was thinking about it, uh, my original thoughts were, very policy oriented, like, um, you know, we, we would be able to do things that we can't do now. Um, we would, you know, have better, uh, control over our economy and trade and things like that. So it was, you know, very kind of concrete wonkish kind of things that this would, this would be better. And there was always, there's always a cultural aspect to it as well. Um, California does have a kind of a distinct culture from the rest, but over the past, few years and really I've only started to think about independence really I guess it was a little over two years ago but um, as as we go through time more recently it seems to be ratcheting up in the sense that it's less it starts to be less and less about oh this would be this would be a good idea and we could do better and and so on and it's more like okay, no, this is getting a little bit more serious. Like we need to do this more to protect people. We need to do this more to protect ourselves. Um, this is, re we're really being harmed. Uh, it's not just something that we could do better. We're actively being harmed by different things. And, you know, quite recently, I'm sure as a lot of listeners are aware, there's been this, um, avalanche of Supreme Court rulings that have come down um, that are really freaking people out. You know, there was the decision in Roe v. Wade um, last week, uh, which doesn't immediately affect um, affect California, but it indirectly does. Um, and it's, of course, something we care about just because we care about, you know, fellow Americans. Um, but that is not the end of the story by any means on that particular issue. And I don't want to get too much into that, but um, I don't think that's the end of the story on that. There's a snowball effect happening there. You, 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 you know that, you know what's going to happen. There is a snowball effect. And then there's these, there's been a couple rulings on, you know, undermining separation of church and state. There will be a ruling coming up next week that we're pretty certain will uh, kind of strip a lot of authority away from federal agencies to regulate consumer products and the environment and uh, basically allow corporations to do pretty much what they want to do. 
Um, so there's just all these things, uh, you know, coming around and this is not even getting into the fact that, you know, we had a, a attempt to overthrow the government that a significant part of the country doesn't seem to understand what even happened or the reality of it. Um, so the, it feels a lot more urgent here is kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, what is the sense there? I mean, is it, I know, I know that, you know, definitely there's a lot of policy stuff, but do people feel like a real sense of, um, urgency in the sense that I really feel this is affecting my life. Like that it's, that's what it feels like in California now. Like this is really hitting home. Um, is that kind of sense, um, hitting with a lot of people in Scotland? I, I think the same as with in the United States, I think right now, yes, I think we've, we've just had the UK government announce that they're looking to, to, um, pull out of the European convention on human rights. And just to quickly explain what that is, this is a convention that was brought in after world war two. Um, to protect citizens of Europe. It's not a European Union thing. This is a Council of Europe thing. This is countries with and without the European Union. Only two countries have ever withdrawn from this. One of them was Greece during a, a short-lived coup. Um, they subsequently rejoined afterwards. The other country is Russia this year after invading Ukraine. The only country that is still outside of the ECHR is a war criminal state. That's what the UK government is looking to do. And they're looking to introduce, you know, obviously it's to do with Brexit. They want to have their own British Bill of Rights. They feel like the European court is uh, interfering too much in UK domestic legislation. Um, these are very basic human rights that the, you know, it's, it's not that intrusive. It's basic human rights that even at a UN level and Actually, on the UN as well, there was um, there was an attempt by the Scottish Parliament. This goes back to competency. We were trying to introduce the UN Convention on the Rights of Children into Scots law, so it would be part of the Scottish legal system. The UK government referred the matter to the Supreme Court because they felt it fell out with the legislative competency. So instead of negotiating with the Scottish Parliament to say, you know, this is a matter of human rights. We can talk about this. This is fine. We can give you a section 30 order or something. We can amend the, the 2016 Scotland Act, which replaced the, the 1998 Act. They just, they decided that no, having a human rights bill like this will affect the UK government's ability to legislate on certain areas. And this is a consistent thing that's happening with, with Brexit. You know, we had the internal market bill, um, that seeks to regulate um, the market within the United Kingdom after Brexit to pull away from some of the European Union measures. Scotland wants to, of course, remain aligned with the European Union because it will make the application process for EU membership, once we're independent, easier to perform. This is another matter where there are dangerous implications around the very democracy of the Scottish Parliament, the the competency of the Scottish Parliament is at threat here, and if you if you bring all of these examples together, I think people 
at least people who are very tuned into Scottish politics and particularly on the independence side of the debate are starting to feel that gnawing fear that a lot of people like yourself and within uh, the California independence movement and indeed just the human rights movement in general in the United States are starting to feel. I would say that very much that, that that's starting to grow over here as well. Um, well, I really appreciate you joining me today and um, informing everybody about uh, what's going on and uh, the current events. Is there any last uh, thoughts or um, comments that you want to you want to leave with people before we uh, before we end the interview here? In terms of the California independence movement, the one thing that can be done, well, there are two things, obviously. You could you could get involved with political parties like the California National Party that support independence, but that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and everyone can't do that. The one thing people can do is talk about California independence, talk about independence, um, talk about it with, with family, if you can, with friends, with colleagues, co-workers, um, get out and about and, you know, if you're involved in local communities, bring it up. Because the reason that Scottish independence is where it is now, you know, if we look back to 2012 when the referendum was first proposed, uh, the first referendum that is, Scottish independence was polling at about 30%. Now, for context, I think the last poll I saw, and this was back in 2017, granted, the University of California, Berkeley, did a poll and they believe that 30% of Californians support the idea of independence. Whether they actually support independence is another matter, but they support the idea of independence. So California is polling right now, if that has stayed steady, the same as Scotland has now. The way that we then got up to 45% in two years is because we talked to people. Conversations were had. It wasn't politicians like Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon or Patrick Harvey from the Greens. It was um, not people like me, of course, I wasn't involved, but campaigners who were talking to people out on the streets, which is important, but also just talking to people that you know about independence, making it more normalized. You know, I understand that in California, the, the, the movement is relatively young. So there needs to be that um, that sense that it's not outside of the mainstream debate. You can't. This is part of the discussion on the future of what you would say is the California nation. Um, and now we're looking at fifty percent polling as an aggregate, fifty forty eight for independence. And the campaign has only just started. We have a, we have eighteen months of campaigning now to do. Um, I'm confident that if we're campaigning like we were in 2014, plus with the arguments that we now have and the arguments that the UK, uh, the British Nationalist Parties rather, don't have anymore, we can win this and we can win it not through fear, but through talking to people about what can our country be? What can we do differently? Um, so I would say that's something that needs to be discussed more in the California independence movement. You need to get out, you need to speak to people because that's how you're going to win. That's how any of us are going to win. Well, we, uh, we are definitely uh, supportive of uh, Scottish independence 
uh, here in the California independence movement. And we, uh, we wish you the best, uh, in the, the coming weeks and months and, and years. And, uh, I really look forward to, uh, the, the relationships and the, um, connections that we make between the two movements as we go on in the future, um, for, for both of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Likewise. Absolutely. Thanks again for stopping by and talking and, uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you very much.